Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking to Ed Finn, the author of What Algorithms Want, Imagination in the Age of Computing. Ed Finn is founding director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University, where he's also assistant professor with a joint appointment in the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering and the Department of English. Ed Finn, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Chris. I want to start with two sentences from your book's introduction. Algorithms enact theoretical ideas and pragmatic instructions, always leaving a gap between the two in the details of implementation. The implementation gap is the most important thing we need to know and the thing we most frequently misunderstand about algorithmic systems. So I guess that begs the question, why is it so important and why is it so frequently misunderstood? This was really the the realization that got me started on the book project, that when you think about a system like Siri, for example, there's this big gulf between the story we tell about how Siri works and what it does, and then the way that it actually works in in life. So one little anecdote of this, uh, when you there was a there was a scandal a few years ago when people realized that if you asked Siri, uh, where can I go to get an abortion or where where is there an abortion? Uh, center nearby, Siri would provide a list of places that did not provide abortions, but were uh, sort of right to life, family planning and and, uh, health clinics. And in fact, they they were basically occluding the information about where you could actually go to to get that medical service. And it turned out this happened. This was not some kind of diabolical scheme or political statement by Apple. Uh, It happened because the websites of those other facilities that do not provide abortion services talk about abortion much more. And so in the logic of the, the, the sort of linguistic analysis that, that Apple was doing, that algorithm was doing, those places were associated with that word much more frequently than the kind of, say, a Planned Parenthood uh, Women's Health Center would, would be. And so that's really interesting. And then the solution to that was, I'm guessing, a series of of sort of workarounds and fixes. And when you think about all of the questions that people ask Siri now, there are probably thousands of those workarounds and fixes. So some engineers had to go in there and write in some special rules to say, like, look, abortion is is a different kind of word. It's a word with special connotation, and it can't just be treated like the the run of the mill words in our in our lexicon in our in our dictionary. And so there's this big gap between the rhetoric of objectivity, the rhetoric of omniscience that we think about when we think about algorithms, uh, and also the rhetoric of sort of regularity of completionism and the way that things actually work, which is there's a lot of duct tape, there's a lot of bailing wire, there are lots of small corrections, because the more that these computational systems interact with human culture, the more they have to deal with exceptions and weirdness and politics and all of the stuff that makes human life so messy and interesting. Is that why when later on you talk about algorithms as culture machines, the fact that as they're beginning to work with human culture and humans are having to work with these workarounds, and in fact, the answers they give, similar to this question you had, with which you talked about Apple with the abortion clinics, that in fact, as humans and algorithms are working on this, they're actually shaping culture as they go forward. Well, that's what I find so interesting now. We are thinking through our computers. We are reading and writing through them. Uh, algorithms are not just filtering our messages or 
suggesting people for us to date or people for us to be friends with. They're really shaping not just the, the immediate stuff that we're thinking about, but the whole horizon of our thinking, the things we might know about, the peripheral vision, if you will, of, of, our, of our thought. Because increasingly, we're only going to know about things if some algorithm has brought them to our attention because there's so much information out there and we're so dependent on social media platforms, on systems like Google to help us surface the news, the, the happenings of the day. And so in, in those very real ways, algorithms are shaping culture uh, in a very sort of direct individual way at the same time that many, many, all, really all creative industries are now using computation in different ways to inflect what it means to, to create art, to advance the sort of uh, the progress of the arts, the progress of culture. And so in all of these different ways, uh, they are culture machines. And I think it's really productive to, to think about them in that way so that they're not just computation. They're not just math. Uh, they're machines, they're systems that involve humans and software and interfaces and logistics and bits and atoms, all sorts of different things in these complicated interconnected things, uh, these, these uh, elaborate structures that have unintended consequences that, that fall apart sometimes, uh, that, do, that surprise us. Uh, and fundamentally, as we try and understand them, they are also adapting and changing and trying to understand us. So for the first time in human history, we've created a set of tools that is, in some sense, uh, adapting to us in a semi-autonomous way at the same time that we're coming to terms with them and their social impact on the world. You know, there's been a lot of – I've been seeing a lot of things recently in like book reviews and, and, a, and maybe there's just several books coming out where we're starting to question actually what defines intelligence. And this book does get into this a little bit. Um, with the fact that when we look at machines and we look at algorithms, and I think an example you gave from the book was the movie Her, that people are now, there's obviously going to be a group where we're saying, oh, these machines and artificial intelligence is going to move faster than we can, and we aren't even really 100% sure what it means for algorithms or artificial intelligence to learn, that it's a set of intelligence that as a human we just don't understand because it's working at a separate level of hu- than human intelligence it is. Uh, how do you respond to when somebody says, well, is this true? Are algorithms learning in a different way than humans? And are we kind of creating perhaps a Frankenstein's monster for ourselves? Or do you think it's perhaps that's maybe a little overblown? Uh, well, I love talking about Frankenstein, uh, since that's, that's another project we have cooking. Uh, that'll be out later this spring. But uh, I think that the so, 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 so just to make sure, does, does this mean you're actually, you're not, you're not saying you're creating artificial life and we'll let it loose on small villages throughout Europe in the, uh, in the spring? <laughs> oh, no, no, that would be interesting. But no, I'm, I'm, the only kind of life that I'm really good at creating is books. And so there's a new edition of Frankenstein, uh, coming out in May with MIT Press. And maybe we can do another podcast about that. That would be fun. Uh, so I, I was just doing a little bit of, of, uh, narrative foreshadowing there. Uh, so, uh, what I think we, we know about computation is that to the extent that computational systems think, they think in a way that's fundamentally different from the way humans think. Um, and what, what, the way I see it is that uh, the most interesting, the most sophisticated, the most uh, seemingly intelligent systems we've created so far are really based on big data. And we've seen in the past few years this uh, 
breathtaking acceleration uh, in the space of machine learning and deep learning uh, systems like Google's DeepMinds that went from a few years ago mastering a set of classic Atari video games to now mastering Go, uh, engaging in all sorts of uh, very sophisticated uh, sort of public and performative thinking, uh, playing these very complex games that people thought it would take decades for computers to master. Um, Or IBM's Watson, which is now working in the fields of healthcare. It's working, there are some actuaries in Japan who were replaced by one installation of, of Watson. So this this notion of, of uh, computers thinking on a practical level uh, in terms of different kinds of uh, workplace challenges, that's already happening. But the way they do it is really different. So uh, with a system like Watson, for example, it, it approaches a medical problem by anal- analyzing thousands and thousands of different pieces of information about a particular case. Um, I remember reading an article a few years ago about uh, some, some doctors who were, who were interacting with Watson, uh, and Watson would, would make some sort of analysis or an assessment of a, of a medical case and you know, provide some kind of a recommendation. And the doctors would only really be able to th- th- believe that recommendation if they could see some kind of causal chain, if, say, if, if, they, if they, th- the engineers had to create a sort of window into Watson's thinking and say, like, well, here are the five really crucial pieces of evidence that uh, this, the, the machine is using to make this to, to make this assessment or this judgment, because that's how a human would do it. A human would pull out a few pieces of information and say, well, these are the most important things we need to pay attention to. This is how I'm going to reason my way through this complicated problem. Uh, but th- th- in a way, that's kind of a, a fantasy, because that's not actually how these machines work. They really are looking at sometimes not just thousands of pieces of data, but thousands of dimensions of data. And you think about the human mind where, you know, most of the time we struggle to keep track of four dimensions. Uh, Sometimes we can get a little bit higher than that. And so I think that's a fundamentally different way of thinking. And in the book, I talk about this notion of computational thought and maybe even computational imagine as an alien space. I use the metaphor of the ocean and we can we can ride in a boat on the surface of the ocean. We could even swim in the ocean, but we can only interact with and experience some tiny portion of it. And the rest of it, we can only get at through abstraction and metaphor. We can't really think through it the same way that a machine can. The intelligence question is, is, is really interesting too, because I think that's distinct from this, this notion of how, uh, how thought occurs. Uh, and no, as far as I know, nobody's come up with a really compelling definition of intelligence. It's very, very difficult to pin down. And there's, there's all of this interesting argument about uh, whether we'll even know intelligence when we meet it. Because, again, it might be so fundamentally alien from us. Uh, there's a great line out there that if, if the super intelligent AI ever arrives, we'll just have no idea because we'll be like the gut bacteria living in the, the belly of this beast, and it'll be on a scale so much more sophisticated than ours that we won't even recognize the change in the world. But I think that one of the best approaches to this question is one of the first from Alan Turing in the, the famous paper where he uh, laid out his idea for the Turing test. And he makes it clear in the paper that he thinks the whole question is a little bit ridiculous, and it's really difficult to pin down what intelligence is. And so this notion of 
defining intelligence by the ability to mimic a human. And he also brings in gender in a very interesting way. He says it's not just about mimicking a human, but mimicking a man or a woman. That, that's that's a sort of a strange approach because it basically says, well, we don't really know what it is, so we're just going to we're just going to define intelligence by this capacity to copy at a at a, at a very uh, sophisticated level of, of mimicry, which seems like a totally different notion of intelligence. Um, but the best part of that, of that paper is where he goes after that, where he says, well, setting aside this question of whether we're going to be able to recognize intelligence or define intelligence, we need to think about how we're going to treat these, these machines. And we need to think about parent-child relationships. We need to think about, the, about nurturing and the, the sort of uh, the growth of intelligence like the growth of a, of a child into an adult. And that is a very powerful idea that uh, I think we're going to need to, to confront more as we start developing more sophisticated systems. I'm looking at the questions I have for you, and I'm not sure you may have answered this, but I'm now going to try to kind of revamp the question. I initially was going to ask about chance, because when you, if we talk about the abstractions that occur within using a Siri or a Google, as these algorithms get better and, and, and more accurate, and that there's a sense for the people who program them that there are right answers or answers that could be given, is are we going to be outsourcing or eliminating chance in the future, or will we be able to recognize chance when it is, or is it perhaps what we think is chance is in fact an algorithm looking at it from a non-random point of view, just we don't understand how it came to that answer. And I'm not sure if you might have already answered that question, but uh, if you want to have a go, please feel free. I'm really interested in this question, and I think there are two two, two approaches. So the word I, I really want to talk about is serendipity. Uh, but before I, before I talk about that, I want to lay out something that uh, a lot of people don't know, uh, but, but, but chance is is very difficult to achieve in computation. And when you think about randomness in computation, there are these uh, random number generators, which are actually pseudo-random. And true randomness is very, very hard to, to create uh, in a computational system. And so whenever you're... T- so, so at a very fundamental uh, sort of technical level, chance is is really the performance of chance or something that we basically box black box off and say this is a close enough to random chance that we're going to just pretend that it's really random chance even though it's not and it's actually uh, predictable when you you sort of there are different mathematical functions that give you these sort of pseudo random uh, outputs that you can use to create something quote unquote random in computation so there's something really interesting there about how hard it is to actually make things random uh, at an instrumental level through code Except, of course, that the more complicated our systems get, the more unexpected consequences we have, the more randomness is introduced as noise when different complex systems interact with one another and things fail unexpectedly or have unexpected results. So setting that aside, most of the time we're working with systems that work reasonably well. They're functioning the way they're supposed to. And so when we think about chance as a human experience, we think about serendipity, about the surprising connections, the unexpected happenings that make our lives interesting, we're increasingly talking about things that are engineered by algorithm. So serendipity is now something that Facebook has a big stake in because Facebook is showing you that really important status update that's going to change your life because you learned something magnificent or terrifying about your close friend. Uh, 
the serendipity of the places that you walk in the city is now closely uh, interwoven with things like Google Maps and GPS that are presenting different kinds of information to you, letting you know about things that are happening. Um, and I think we're, as, as the layer of computation thickens over the planet and we move into more and more augmented reality and location-based services, that notion of manufactured serendipity is only going to become more and more prevalent. And clearly, this is going to be a, an incredibly lucrative business space for people who want to create that sense of serendipity that, you know, leads you to, to make some uh, improvisational purchase, right? <laughs> because you've gotten just the perfect ad at just the perfect moment in just the right place. So I think there's something interesting about the, the more the more you look at this though the more complicated it gets because serendipity has always been constructed in some sense you live in a city because you want to have certain kinds of serendipitous interactions uh a lot of our lives are constructed around uh you know usually subconsciously but but often in very powerful or and ordering ways we're, we're sort of excluding the people we don't want to think about and we're including the people we do want to think about you think about uh, class and ethnic divisions. You think about segregation. There are all of these ways in which we've always been constructing different kinds of serendipity. But somehow when that gets put in the hands of an algorithm, and sometimes an algorithm that's, that was clearly designed to create certain forms of serendipity, uh, but, but often where serendipity was never really considered by the engineers, they were solving some technical problem, you're creating a different situation where uh, chance and meaning are uh, almost at odds with one another. And I don't. Th th so I'm reminded of a uh, of a of a line from uh, a books by book by the by the uh, a scholar Alexander Galloway, who he talks about people trying to figure out a video game who assume that every single thing that happens in the game has some kind of meaning to it. They're reading the computational system and saying everything here must be real, and so. The stakes of random occurrences in the game are, are, are sort of are very high, and you have to figure out how to signal to people to not pay too much attention to one thing or another thing, uh, or not spend too much time trying to read some meaning into it. So, yeah, I, I think chance and serendipity are uh, that we, we're, we're moving into uh, the, the, the a, a deep zone of apophenia, of, a, of an endless hunt for patterns where they may or may not exist. So finally, near the end of the book, you talk about a thing called experimental humanities. Could you describe what that is? Experimental humanities is is what I do. <laughs> uh, I realized a couple of years ago that I moved at some point uh, between getting my PhD and, and running this uh, very unusual uh, research center here at Arizona State University called the Center for Science and the Imagination. I realized when I w made that switch that I, I, I stopped being an armchair critic and understanding the creative works that other people have done and, and writing about them or interpreting them. And I started to build things and then do my own experiments and see how the things that I build work out and fare in the world. And so uh, instead of being a, a sort of a scholar of science fiction, we bring together science fiction writers and scientists and engineers, and we're trying to create this new model for 
a very directly engaged storytelling about the near future that's uh, in the effort to, in the attempt to get people to feel a stronger sense of agency and to, un to, to feel a sense of efficacy about the world uh, and to see how the choices we're making now are going to actually make different futures possible. So experimental humanities to me is really about rolling up your sleeves and trying things. And when I say building things and making things, I mean uh, books and events and literary or humanistic experiments, as well as things that feel more like, you know, physical objects uh, or uh, theatrical or uh, exper experiential installations, artworks, things like that. Uh, but I'm trying all of these different things. And uh, it, it's, it's really fun. I think it, it serves for me as a model of how the humanities can be uh, can, can engage directly with all of these changes in digital culture, can find new ways to be broadly relevant uh, and articulate not just our, our value to society, but also uh, the kinds of conversations, the kinds of skills, the kinds of questions that students should be uh, learning about, should be grappling with. Um, and, uh, and it's also just tremendously fun to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm inspired by, I didn't make up this term, but I, I think I'm sort of doing my own version of it. Uh, and I'm inspired by uh, all sorts of different uh, scholars and, and research practitioners. Uh, but, uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's really an effort to, uh, to take the, the critical lens of the humanities and combine it with a kind of a, a very attentive focus on, on creative practice and methods uh, and thinking through how you actually make stuff in the world and what the consequences are for, for making as well as for, uh, for assessing, analyzing, uh, being, being a critic of, of the stuff in the world. So is there a URL for that center if people want to learn a little bit more about it? Oh, there is. It's uh, csi.asu.edu. We uh, have all sorts of uh, weird, exciting, and interesting projects. Uh, in addition to the new Frankenstein book, I'm helping to co-direct the Frankenstein Bicentennial Project, which is a whole range of different activities and experiments uh, around the upcoming Bicentennial of Mary Shelley's novel. Uh, we do work uh, funded by the National Science Foundation, by NASA, uh, uh, by a range of different um entities uh, past and present on different projects and uh, we're continuing to pursue new and hopefully uh, never before tried uh, work at the intersection of the humanities the sciences and the arts wow great ed finn the author of what algorithms want thanks so much for being on the mit pest podcast today thank you for having me again this was fun for more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2017, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.